Thank you for tuning into Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean and we finished up an interview with someone that a lot of you are going to know if you've watched any hockey games, Pierre Maguire. He's a huge broadcaster for NBC Sports Network and he works a ton of events. He even does water polo in the Olympics and you know he's all over and super knowledgeable. Really excited that we had the opportunity to interview him. Garrett, what'd you think about today's interview? It was just great to get to know Pierre on a more personal level. He's talked to our team here in Long Island, uh, more specifically about hockey players and what they did to get to the NHL level. But it was really cool to kind of see the grit and the story that he had to go through to get to the top. You know, growing up in Montreal, obviously he loved being a part of the game and grew up and was involved in it. But just his story of getting into coaching and kind of grinding through the coaching and not getting paid a ton, uh, but really just seeing it through all the way uh, until the end and even now, and everything's really worked out for him. Um, you know, a lot of people give this guy some heat sometimes on the NHL with what he does in broadcasting, but such a down-to-earth person. Uh, you know, we're grateful he was able to come on and talk to us for the hour or so that he did. Uh, but it was really nice to be able to talk to him and learn more about him as a person. Yeah, you know, we talked about in the interview, and as a broadcaster, you have to take sides. You have to give an opinion, and it has to be an honest opinion. You can't sugarcoat it, like he said, or you won't be in the industry. So, you know, he's just doing his job, and it was cool to research him and learn more about how much he has influenced the game. You know, he was a big advocate for removing the red line and getting rid of the two-line pass. So now it can be, you know, more of a speed game, and teams can't just play that trap against you. And, you know, he called the old game tackle football, and it really was. If you watch it, you know, they call it water skiing, where you just put your stick in a guy's ribs and make him drag you to the net, right? Like, it's just not really a great way to play. So it's really cool to – pick the brain of someone who's been around the game for so long. You know, he won the Stanley cup back in 1991 and here we are 30 years later, still talking to him and he's still so involved and might be the most knowledgeable guy there is about the up and coming players and the current players. So it's fantastic. Yeah. It was crazy when he was telling some of his stories, he knew, you know, the location, the date, the score, the players that were involved, just very knowledgeable guy. And he talks about learning something new every day. What a great piece of advice. And it seems like he continues to do that whether that's in hockey or outside. Let's kick it on over to Pierre Maguire. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills, including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. Today's guest was born in Englewood, New Jersey. He is a graduate of Hobart College, where he was also a tri-sport athlete, playing hockey, football, and baseball. In 1993, he became the youngest coach in the National Hockey League at age 32. He also served as an assistant coach, scout, assistant general manager in the NHL. However, today, he is most notably known as a broadcaster working for NBCSN. He was the first ever broadcaster to go inside the glass. He has worked multiple Olympics and appears on TSN radio. We are excited to be joined by Pierre Maguire. 
Hey, Sean, how you doing? Great. How are you? Good. Thanks for those kind words. Good talking to you too, Garrett. Good to see you again. Yeah, real excited to have you on. And Pierre, you were born in New Jersey, but spent some time in Montreal. What was your childhood like and what sparked your interest in hockey? Uh, good question. I was born in Englewood, New Jersey, same hospital to a great football coach, Bill Parcells. Um, and then we moved to Canada. My mother's Canadian and my dad was from uh, North Dakota. So we moved up to Canada when I was really young. Uh, I start. I fell in love with hockey right away. Um, you know, obviously the Montreal Canadiens were an unbelievable team. And so I got to tell you, Garrett, I, I spent a lot of time watching hockey games and going in the rink outdoors by our house and, uh, in the park there in Montreal. And, you know, got to be, I think I got to become a pretty decent player. And, um, you know, I, I went back to school in New Jersey to play football and hockey at this unbelievable high school called Bergen Catholic. Uh, and I was so grateful to go there. But I would have stayed in Montreal and probably would have played junior hockey had I not left. So I'm kind of grateful that I had the opportunity to get an education. And hockey's been really good to me. Sports has been amazing to me. So I'm grateful for that. Speaking about that education, you graduated with a degree from English uh, in Hobart while also playing three sports as a defenseman in hockey, pitcher in baseball, and a quarterback for the football team. How did you balance academics, <laughs> athletics, and a social life? That's such a good question, Sean, because I did have a social life too. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is I've always had this unbelievable passion for sport. And uh, I had teachers that understood that, and I had coaches that were unbelievably uh, good in terms of understanding that as well and helping me so I think having mentors uh, and positive mentors really helped a lot and having awesome teammates but um, it'd be hard to find me not playing sports every day like I'm, I'm always doing something athletically every day I just love it I don't know something I guess I was born with how big is Hobart College uh 2000 almost 2200 people okay um it's an interesting situation how I ended up there I actually wasn't going there I was going somewhere else and I won't tell you where but it was a division one school and the coach got fired and when the coach got fired all the academic and athletic grants were kind of taken away from the players and, but he had a friend that was starting the program at Hobart and he called the coach at Hobart and said I got this guy that might fit what you're trying to do so I was on the first ever varsity team there and I'm really proud of that because they've become a, a fantastic group of uh Hockey players there, uh, Mark Taylor, the coach, has done an outstanding job. So, I, I, you know, again, I was really grateful. Everything worked out perfectly for me. All my dreams and aspirations that I had as a little kid, they all worked out. And I'm grateful for Hobart uh, helping facilitate some of that. Yeah, I was curious because I think that I went to Robert Morris, like we just talked about, and uh, it's only about 4,000. And I think that a lot of people don't look at a small school uh, as having a lot of benefits of the big schools. But I really liked having smaller class sizes because – you know, I had teachers who understood. I was closer with those mentors. And I think it was actually easier to balance sports and academics. You know, Sean, I think that's really well said. I, I can use just a personal example. Um, my son is playing in the British Columbia Junior Hockey League right now, playing for Penticton. And he was aggressively recruited by a lot of big schools and smaller schools. And he's decided to go to Colgate. And, uh, you know, uh, Garrett's coach now, Brett Riley, is the guy that recruited him to go to Colgate. And I... I never got involved in the process. I let it play out for him, but it, I'm so happy he's going to a smaller school than a big school because he won't get lost. And, and I think he's a kid academically that will need that smaller classroom than the bigger classroom, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's important to realize that for yourself. Um, 
and find what what type of individual you are and if you can work in those small school environments or you like the bigger classes because there's obviously, as you know, going through it, uh, sometimes when you go to the Ohio States or the Wisconsin's, you got 300 plus kids in your class and you really have to be attentive uh, and pay attention um, and they can be really tough. Yeah, there's no question about it, Garrett. But I, again, I, I had the privilege of going to watch you practice and speak to your group at Long Island. And I'm really impressed by what's going on there. I'm really, really impressed with what Coach Riley's doing there and his assistants and the way you men carry yourselves. It's, it's really fascinating to watch the evolving program that you're a part of right now. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, obviously very grateful for the opportunity uh, to be here and be under Coach Riley and all that they're doing here. Uh, but back to your story, you mentioned that you stayed busy playing sports all the time, and it seemed that that carried throughout your entire career. Um, and after your playing career ended, you started coaching at your alma mater. And word is uh, you worked as a substitute teacher to make ends meet. That's what was true. your outlook on the situation? And did you know it was such a small price to pay for the potential future success? Um, no, I didn't. I, I just was fascinated by being at the rink all the time and working with younger players and actually uh, after playing professionally, I came back and there were guys on the team that I had played with. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah, I made 400. That, that's a good year. It's a great story because it shows if you really want to do something, and you're committed to it, it can work out. I made $400 for the year. I made $50 a day as a substitute school teacher. I probably got two or three gigs a week teaching. And then on Sundays, I would go work at Ronnie Cedar Inn, which is a legendary uh, bar in, in Geneva, New York. So I worked there and probably made, I don't know, another 50 bucks for that day. So the school gave me an apartment, a meal ticket, and all the substitute school teaching I could do and coaching. And that's how I started. And I'm so grateful uh, for Hobart allowing me to do that. I was the first ever assistant they ever hired there. Um, and because of that, you know, my career took off and I'm really grateful for that. Sounds like you weren't afraid to take on new jobs and new adventures. And your next coaching stop was at Babson, where you were the assistant hockey coach and also a lacrosse coach. Did you yeah, know much about lacrosse, lacrosse or did you have to yeah, make it yeah, up? Yeah, no, as a kid growing up in Montreal, I did, but it wasn't field lacrosse, it was box lacrosse. And, um, you know, they named me the head coach of the lacrosse, and we had some really good players. I, I thought those kids worked as hard as any kids I've ever had, whether pro hockey players or Sean or, or, or college hockey players. I was blown away by their determination. And we had some good teams there. Um, the hockey program at Babson when I was there was very good. Uh, I was wor working for Steve Sterling, who was also the athletic director there. And so I had, I could really get a lot of reps as a coach and I was there for three years and, you know, coached some fantastic players. One guy, Tommy Sasso was drafted by Quebec. Uh, he went you know, Hobie Baker twice for division three players, which is amazing. And, uh, you know, coached so many. Ronnie Barron was a great player for us. And so many guys, Joe Flaherty, uh, played a little bit with the Maine Mariners in the American Hockey League. They can go down the line, Chucky Brooks. We had some really, really good players there. I, I loved coaching. I loved living in Boston. I loved coaching at Babson. Yeah, your next stop landed you at St. Lawrence uh, before your first pro coaching job with Pittsburgh. Do you think having coaching jobs in more than one sport gave you an edge on other coaches in regard to tactics or understanding your players? You don't care. That's a really good question. I never really thought about it, but now that you pose it, I pro probably so, especially as a younger guy, because you work with a lot of different athletes in different sports. So you see different things and you have to adjust all the time. And I think that's a big part of coaching. It's not just communication. It's about selling your plan. 
And I think that helped a lot. I, I think that's something that gets a little bit overlooked. And uh, I'm grateful for that as well. But the, the time at St. Lawrence, at that point, I, I had been offered five Division One assistance jobs and I had to choose, and uh, it was a no-brainer. I went up there with Ray Shiro, who was a St. Lawrence alum, visited Joe Marsh, who was a head coach at the time, and really is a living legend, and uh, he convinced me right away. And I, I told him, I said, I'm gonna go visit these other schools, but I give you my word as a man, I'm gonna take the job with you, and I did. And uh, it were two amazing years with phenomenal players. I think we had 11 guys that ended up playing pro hockey off those two teams, and we recruited a bunch of guys as a staff that ended up uh, Daniel LaPerriere and Eric Lacroix, Greg Carville, so many good players uh, that went on to have unbelievable playing careers and coaching careers and hockey management careers. So uh, I love my time there. Joe Marsh was an amazing mentor. He's a dear friend and, and somebody that I really respect a ton. Is that where you developed your relationship with Scotty Bowman as well? It is, Garrett. Uh, Mr. Bowman actually had his daughter. He, was, he had been fired by Buffalo and he called Mike Keenan, who worked for him in Rochester. That was Buffalo's farm team at the time. And he said to Mike, my daughter was looking at different schools. And I know you went to St. Lawrence. What was your experience like there? And Mike goes, I loved it. So Scotty actually drove his daughter, Alicia, up to St. Lawrence. And when she was visiting and going around campus, he came to the rink. And he watched me run a practice. And he came down to the office after the practice. He said, I was fascinated by that practice. I loved it. He says, can I get your phone number? And he, he never really introduced himself really. I said, I know who you are. And he goes, yeah, I'm Scotty Bowman. I go, what are you doing here? And he told me the whole story about his daughter. And he just, there were no cell phones then, guys. And he would call me every day. He would call me every day and we would talk hockey. And at one point he said, if I go to the National Hockey League, I want you to come. Would you come with me? And I said, absolutely. And that first year I was at St. Lawrence, he almost took the job in, in New York with the New York Rangers. And he ended up... Not taking the job, and the next summer he took a job in Pittsburgh. And I watched the press conference, and right after the press conference was over, my phone was ringing. It was Scotty offering me a job. I was watching it on ESPN. It was crazy, and then he called me up. So that was kind of neat. Your first head coaching job in the NHL only lasted six months, and professional sports are just like any other business. Unfortunately, people are fired. What did you take away from your time with the Whalers? Uh, I don't think that. Actually, that story gets reported correctly enough or accurately enough, Sean. Uh, that year, I was the assistant general manager. I had been the assistant coach the year before. And what happened was I was over in Europe. And the team in their first 15 games had a really tough start, really, really tough start. And I was trying to get a player signed by the name of Andre Nikolishin, who was a Russian. And back then, I think you had to have all your players signed by a certain date. And I want to say it was probably right around uh, October 20th, if I remember correctly. And if you didn't have them signed, you couldn't come and play for you at the end of the year with European born players. It's changed since then, that rule. But anyway, so I was over there trying to get him signed. And I was on a scouting trip as well um, after meeting with him. And I was up in Sweden and my phone rang in my room and it was Mr. Gordon, our owner, saying, I want you to come back. And Paul Holmgren, who was acting general manager, he said, uh, Paul's going to step aside from the coaching and you're going to start coaching the team. You're going to be the head coach. So I came back. And if you go look at the first 20 games um, of our Hartford Whaler uh, days as a head coach, we had the third best record in the league, the first 20 games. And then we had players just dropping like flies. It was unbelievable. 
um, due to injury. We went on a very long uh, road trip out west, and it was really tough. Uh, we lost overtime games. We had a 3 nothing lead in one game in Anaheim. We lost that game. Then we went to San Jose the next day and got blitzed, and then we had to fly all the way to Boston. I mean, it was a hellacious trip. Um, and the players gave everything they had, but they had nothing left to give. Um, I eventually got fired at the end of that year, but part of what doesn't get reported, the team got sold. Mr. Gordon sold the team. And if Mr. Gordon had stayed as the owner, I don't believe I would have been fired. We're going to have to set the record straight then because everything we, you know, obviously we do research and everything we find online says otherwise. So I'm glad we got the the no, real story. I did get fired, so they're not wrong on that. But it never gets reported that Mr. Gordon sold the team. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously an important, uh, important detail. Uh, and we were talking about how you, your relationship developed with Scotty Bowman, and he ended up getting the job in Pittsburgh and uh, brought you along. And in the moment, in the moment, many say there are no words when winning the Stanley Cup. In hindsight, what were your emotions when you won the Cup in Pittsburgh in 1992? Well, we won in '91 as well, so I've won it twice. Um, the '91 one was pretty spectacular. Uh, standing in the runway in Minnesota, the old Bloomington. Met Center, and uh, the thing that stood out about that game six, we won eight nothing. Not one fan left the building. It just shows you how great the fans are uh, in Minnesota. The hockey fans in Minnesota blow me away, and they stayed right till the end and they saluted our team. It was amazingly classy by what they did. And I'll never forget when the cup was presented to me in the dressing room. I I, I couldn't believe it. I, I almost fainted. You know, it was just amazing and. Uh, then the next year, obviously, we won the cup again. Um, it was pretty cool. It, it's something you never forget. <laughs> you don't forget it, I'll tell you that. The thing about the 92 team that nobody talks about, we had great players. We had phenomenal players and great leadership and an amazing head coach. We really did. But what doesn't get talked about enough is that team won 11 straight games to win the cup. So if you go back to the second round, they won three straight against the Rangers to close out that series. Then they won four straight against Boston. Uh, and then they won four straight against Chicago. 11 straight games to win the cup. That, that I guarantee will be a record that won't get broken. It won't. Yeah, I was thinking a sweep in the Stanley Cup final alone is so rare. 11 all the way through, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But I was looking at that roster. And like you said, the great players, Mario Lemieux, Paul Coffey, Yarmir Yager. What is it that those types of players do to separate themselves and become so elite? Work habits are amazing. Um, if you go, I'll never forget the 2005 World Junior in Grand Forks, North Dakota. It was Crosby's second World Junior. It's the best team Canada ever sent to the World Junior. And I remember going out for dinner with Kevin Lowell, Bob Nicholson from Hockey Canada at the time, uh, Brent Sutter, and Wayne Gretzky, along with my broadcast partner, Gordon Miller. And Gretz was talking at the table and everybody was listening and he was talking about watching Crosby in practice and he couldn't believe how intense he wasn't even drafted yet, how intense and how hardworking and diligent he was. And he goes, most great players are like, now this is coming from Wayne Gretzky. So you listen. And most great players are like that. And, you know, I thought about it at the time. And now this is what 11, 12 years after I had coached those guys. And I started thinking back, you know, coffee was always the first guy at the rink. Lemieux in practice, you never had any issues. He always busted it. Yarmir Yager would stay out for hours. In fact, you know, I'll never forget Scotty Bone saying, stop skating so much with him. You're going to wear him out. Um, you know, you can go down the line. All Ophie Samuelson, all the great Larry Murphy. Larry Murphy and Joey Mullen, both guys in the Hockey Hall of Fame. 
they would come and see me before practice in the morning and say, can we go out 45 minutes early? I'd be like, yeah, sure, no problem. And I'd pass some pucks or skate with them or do whatever. And so it just shows you that I think great players, they had unbelievable work habits, really, really good work habits. Well, Yager's been at it for some time now, and I'm sure his work habits haven't, you know, haven't stopped. He's still playing in Europe. Uh, what, what have you thought about his career and how crazy is it to you that he still continues to play the game at such a high level? Well, you guys didn't give me the questions in advance, so I'll just tell you, I'll never forget the 1990 draft. Um, you know, that's a lot of years ago, 31 years ago, but here, here's the story. Uh, that was my first draft, and I remember sitting in a boardroom in the Pan Pacific Hotel with Bob Johnson, the late Bob Johnson, Craig Patrick, who was an amazing general manager, uh, Greg Malone, who's a chief scout, and Scotty Bowman. And we were going over names because we had the fifth overall pick. And I just was blown away by all the other potential players that might fall to our spot. But we all said at the same time, Yager was the best player in that draft. So Owen Nolan went first. He was a good player. Peter Nedved went second. He was a good player. Keith Primo went third. He ended up having a good team. Mike Ricci went fourth. And then the Pittsburgh Penguins had Yarmer Yager at five. Think about that. That's unbelievable. And the career he's had is phenomenal. But again, I got to tell you guys, his work habits were exemplary. Um, and he was as talented as any player in the history of the National Hockey League. He really was. He was playing an era when it was like tackle football and guys would just jump on his back and he'd still carry them to the net. It was unbelievable how strong he was. Yeah, a lot of people have that argument like, oh, what if Wayne played today? What if Peter Forsberg was able to play in today's game without all that abuse on his body? But I was wondering, as someone who's been in those rooms making those draft picks, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, take the right guy. And you guys knew Yager was the best, but it seems like four other teams didn't, right? So how much can you tell that a player is going to be great at that young age? Because like you said, it comes down to the work habits and that continued of the process as they're already in the NHL. You know, I think one of the big things, Sean, is you got to get out and watch a lot of practices. You can't be afraid to ask questions of coaches or people that are around them, whether he's in school, asking school teacher uh, to teachers questions about the player. So there's so many different things that you have to look at. Um, but I, the one thing about Yarmer was he had this unbelievable passion to be excellent, not just a little bit good, but to be excellent. So that always stood out about him. The other thing that doesn't get reported enough on the Yarmer Yager drafting Back then, there was no NHL agreement between Eastern Bloc countries. Craig Patrick, because of the 1980 Olympics, had forged amazing relationships with people in Russia, with people in the Czech Republic, and people in Slovakia. Back then, it was Czechoslovakia. It was two, one country. Now it's two. It's Czech Republic and Slovakia. But Craig had amazing contacts. And he knew that if we drafted Jager, he was going to be able to get him to stay. And that was a big part of why a lot of teams made a backed off on him because they probably felt they wouldn't get him right away. And teams needed him right away, especially if you were picking in the top five that year, which, you know, we were. So, but Craig Patrick deserves a lot of credit on that. Yeah, it's great to see that everyone is kind of, you know, unified and the game's becoming more global. But after being part of the coaching staff, scouting and management at the NHL level, how did you become a broadcaster? <laughs> There's a gentleman by the name of Ted Blackman in Montreal. He's a legendary broadcast person. He's passed away, passed away about 15 years ago, but he was my mentor. And what he did was I was coaching in the minors for the St. Louis Blues in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
And uh, the phone rang and it was Ted. And he goes, are you coming back to Montreal to visit your parents? I said, yeah, I'll be there in the summer. How late into the summer? I said, I'll probably be there at the beginning of June. So he says, well, why don't you come and see me? I want to talk to you about something. So I went to go see him and uh, he says, I want you to do this test. So I did this broadcast test, you know, basically imitating a game in the studio. And when I left the studio, he said, we want to hire you to be the color man for the Montreal Canadiens. I said, come on. He said, no, I'm serious. So I said, well, that's fascinating. I never thought about a career in broadcasting. And, you know, I was coaching in the minors at that point uh, and enjoying the heck out of it, by the way. I really liked it. And he said, you know, just try it for a couple of years, see what you think. But he says, I think if you're going to do this, you're only going to be doing it on the radio for two or three years. And then I think you'll be on the national stage. And he couldn't have been more right. And I, I had, I thought he was nuts. I thought I was going to do this for one year and then go back to coaching. And believe it or not, I was offered two jobs during the first year of broadcasting in the NHL. And I didn't take them because I wanted to uphold my agreement with the Canadians and with CJD radio who I was working for. So I didn't take them. And Ted goes, you'll see, you'll see. And then the next year I got approached by TSN and I got hired on national TV in Canada. Congratulations on that. And you've obviously been huge in the sport ever since. And I was uh, listening to your episode on spit and chicklets where you said you don't actually seek out those coaching jobs and you kind of let them come to you. Does this make you a believer in a bigger plan and things happening for a reason? Uh, you know, the one thing about jobs in the national hockey league is everybody thinks that they're easy to get. They're not that the process is unbelievably thorough. It's really, really difficult any job. You could be a trainer, you could be a scout, you could be an assistant coach. Um, jobs are hard. Be a broadcaster. They're hard jobs to get. Everybody wants them and they're not that many jobs out there to get. Uh, so I can tell you that um, every job I ever got in the NHL, somebody called me. I didn't call them. They called me. And I think it's usually that way with everybody in the league. There are very few people that actually apply for a job that get it. Usually you're getting contact, contacted and then you eventually get the job. I think that speaks volumes to the character of people that you have around the NHL. Um, and obviously you did such a great job coaching. Um, as a broadcaster, you were a pioneer. Uh, as a first ever broadcaster, work a game in between the benches, which is now known as inside the glass. What are your summer or what are your what are some of your favorite memories from working this close to the action? Well, it one involves a team that drafted you, the Anaheim Ducks. So I'll go through it and I'll tell you, 2007 Stanley Cup playoffs start and they have no inside the glass position in Anaheim. Brian Burke had hired me from Pittsburgh to go to Hartford after we won our second cup. Brian was a general manager in Anaheim at the time and he was working out uh, before the first round of the playoffs. And we went to Brian, uh, Sam Flood and I, who's the executive producer of the NHL and NBC and said, listen, we got to have a position, a place for Pierre to work. And... <laughs> So Brian goes, well, what about on our bench? And I was like, really? You're going to let me stand on your bench with Randy Carlisle and, and the rest of the staff? And he goes, yeah, no problem. So I, I'm telling you, I did a bazillion games in Anaheim that year. I stood at the end of the bench with a monitor, and I would be broadcasting from the Anaheim Ducks bench. I'm not kidding you, in the Stanley Cup final. So Sean O'Donnell was one of the defensemen there. Chris Pronger, one of my old players, was a defenseman there. Scotty Niedermeyer. Uh, Kent Huskins. I mean, I can go down the line. It was Francois Beauchemin. Those were the defensemen for Anaheim. And at one point, there was a real bad turnover made by the opposition. 
And I was talking and I said, what an egregious turnover. And Sean O'Donnell looks behind and looks right at me and he says, what does that mean? <laughs> so I thought it was so funny. Everybody on the bench started laughing. It was great, but it just shows you that guys can still have fun, even those pressure pack situations. But that was one of the most unique opportunities I think I ever had was actually broadcast from the bench. And I think once, once it got out there that I was actually on the bench, it gave the position instantaneous credibility. If it didn't have any before, it certainly had a lot of credibility after that. That's awesome. And obviously you were a head coach and a player, so you know a lot about what's going on there. I was wondering, does anything ever surprise you anymore? Oh yeah, every day. You know, that's the biggest thing. Once you aren't surprised anymore, you should probably get out. There are things I learn about players or things I learn about coaches or things I learn about the game. There are things I learned about airplane travel. There are things I learned about hotels. I mean, I, I learned something new every day. And that's a, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from a hockey coach was the late Badger Bob Johnson, who I worked for proudly. And uh, Bob telling me, I'll never forget it, in Vancouver uh, on the draft floor in the big football stadium in 1990, learn something new every day. And if you learn something new every day, the job won't get old. And you know what? I've tried to live up to that. I've tried to learn something new every day. We had the opportunity to learn something new when you were invited to go work the Olympic Games 2012 and 2016. Uh, you did the broadcasting for water polo. How did you get this opportunity? And how did you prepare to cover something that was new to you at the highest level? Oh, water polo is awesome. Uh, the American women are the best in the world. They're phenomenal to cover. Maggie Steffens is the Wayne Gretzky of her sport. Um, she's a young lady from California that played at Stanford. And uh, I'll never forget her Olympics in London. They were the Golden Girls. They were phenomenal, Team USA. And then obviously in, in Rio, they were even better. And uh, it was a pleasure getting to know those women, uh, especially at team at USA House after they won gold. It was just awesome to talk to them. And believe it or not, most of those women are huge hockey fans. They're, they, a lot of them are from California, and they either love the Ducks, they like the Kings, or they like the Sharks. So it's kind of neat that way. The American men used to be the dominant force, but now it's um, the former Yugoslavia. Croatia is really good. Serbia is really good. Montenegro is really good. Uh, so, you know, hungry is really good. So the men's a little bit different than the women, but um, water polo is like hockey, except there's noise. It's very, very similar to hockey and NBC asked me to do it and uh, I'll be forever grateful. I love doing the Olympics. You know, the first Olympics I ever broadcast was 2002. I'll never forget getting a call from Canadian TV saying that uh, we'd like you to go to Salt Lake City. And from there, it was just a love affair. I just love the Olympics, both summer and winter. Just awesome. Yeah, I actually you, listen. Oh, sorry. You're good. Go ahead. I actually was watching the water polo because, like you said, it's surprisingly similar to hockey. And I was hearing you make some comparisons. I think you called one of the goalies like the Patrick Waugh of his oh, team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, I'm telling you. And you know what? I think the water polo community appreciated that, you know, because they were being compared to a big time sport. And I, I marvel. I watched so many practices at both London and Rio. And I was supposed to be in Tokyo last summer obviously it got canceled hopefully we can get to it this summer um but and do a water polo again but i watched in rio i watched the team from serbia train and the coach is standing on the side of the pool with probably a 25 pound medicine ball and he's got a player off the side of the pool and he's throwing the 25 pound medicine ball this swimmer in the pool he's got to catch it he goes under 
can't touch the ground in the pool. He's got to pop up and throw the 25 pound ball out. And they do that for about 30 seconds. I'm not kidding you. And I was like, this is awesome. So I, my son's a pretty good hockey player. That's what I did with him last summer. I threw him in the pool and started throwing medicine balls at him. And he's like, dad, this is hard. I'm like, no kidding. I think you can use that to your advantage and obviously you are, but you see so many world-class athletes in so many different sports and getting that opportunity to be able to broadcast for the Olympics, obviously water polo, but you see how other teams train in other sports. And as you just said, you use that to help your son train, maybe a little unorthodox, but it's obviously helping, can help with conditioning, strength in the pool, uh, legs. So it's really cool. You get that opportunity and then can now pass that experience on to your son. You know what, Garrett, I got to tell you, that's really well said by you. And I totally agree. And, and it's something that uh, I train a lot of kids in Boston in particular in the off season. And I don't let too many people know about it. We got a really good group. Uh, and I'm blown away by how receptive hockey players are to different kinds of training. And I think if you watch Ryan O'Reilly with some of his training stuff that he does, or if you would have watched Yarmer Yager and some of the things he used to do, or even Mario Lemieux, um, who's an unbelievable person, by the way, as great a player as Mario was, he's a better human being. He's an unbelievable guy. And he couldn't do much, but he had to be in shape. So he did different ways of training as well. So all these years, you know, what's it been, 32, 33 years of professional hockey plus 10 years in college hockey, it's a lot of time, you know, and you learn something new every day, like the great Badger Bob Johnson told me to do. And I think you can do it with training as well. I really do. Yeah, I think if you continue to do similar training that is relatable to your sport, as far as the movement is concerned, you almost wear yourself out. You start to see so many injuries nowadays, guys having to have surgery because they do the same repetitive motion. I think if you can get the same benefits from doing different things or playing other sports, it's only going to continue you know, your longevity in the sport down the line. You know, that that's another good point, too. And Sean, I'm sure you appreciate it, just like Garrett does. When I was playing, we didn't have abdominal wall tears. You know, and these guys are all getting those abdominal alters. We didn't have hip flexor problems. We had groin issues, but we didn't have hip flexor problems. So I agree with what uh, Garrett just said. I think it's a really good point. And I think the other side of that too is just mentally doing something different is so much more enjoyable and stimulating. Like I'm sure your son, when you got him in the pool, throwing a medicine ball at him, he's never done anything like that. No, he's he like, didn't. He just didn't want to drown. <laughs> 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 That's right. No, but um you know, it's, again, I, I think different training is, is really important. And uh, I think hockey's become a better sport because of that. I really do. I think hockey players are better athletes now because they do different training. Yeah, I agree 110%. Uh, but going back, as a broadcaster, you have to take sides and say things people won't always agree with. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle being in the role of the bad guy and having an unpopular opinion sometimes? Um, it's part of the job. You knew what you signed up for, so you got to do it. And, um, you know, that's especially when you're doing it at the national level because you don't cheer. For, see, this is the biggest misconception about broadcasters. I can tell you, football guys, baseball guys, basketball guys, when you work for a national network, you don't care who wins or loses. You don't care. What you want is a great game, and you want to celebrate the star plays and the star players in the game that you're broadcasting. Sometimes there's going to be things that happen in the game that aren't going to be very good. But the, the guys that sugarcoat it, they usually don't last very long in it. The guys that tell the truth, they usually last a little bit longer in it. It's not always easy, um, but it's part of the job. It goes with the territory. But I, I can tell you this. 
I don't know in the 22 or 23 years that I've been doing broadcasting, I've never heard one guy say, Oh, I hope that team loses and that team wins. I've never heard anybody say that ever once ever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, fans just will hear whatever they want to hear. Like if you make a few great comments about the other team, they're like, Oh, they're rooting against us. You know, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sean. But people will sometimes give you a hard time about knowing everything about all these players, you know, where they play junior, their stats, their hometowns. But I think you're a great example of being overly prepared for a job. So how do you prepare for your job? And is it all calculated or do you just really love learning so much about the game and all the players? I love celebrating how players get to the National Hockey League. How do they get to the highest level? Who helped them along the way? Um, what did they have to overcome? Um, I think celebrating the journey is a real important part of the whole process of our job. Um, I hear football guys do that all the time and nobody ever gives them a hard time. I think because our sport is global um, and we have players from all over the world that play, it's important to say where they're from, who they played for uh, and how they got to the national hockey league and celebrate that journey. So I'll never stop doing that. Um, my day starts at five 30 every day every day, including weekends. Um, I'm either up watching tape from different games around the world uh, or watching, you know, NHL highlights, uh, studying uh, league bylaws, studying uh, draft potential players. All, I start every day at 5.30 and that's what I do. So uh, I love doing it. Uh, that won't change when I stop. Love them doing it. Then I'll stop doing it. During the off season, how do you kind of determine how you're going to spend such a large gap? Like, do you have a set system of what you're going to watch or how do you go about that? The off season is a good question. I, I try to be a dad and a husband in the off season. I really do. Um, I know you guys will probably find this a little bit different, but my wife and I really planned because I knew that I wasn't going to be home very much uh, when our children were going to be born. And we were really lucky. Um, one of our children was born on July 27th. The other one was born August 7th. So we wanted to get the children born so I could be home to help her and to see them grow up, especially around their birthdays in the summertime when I wasn't working. So um, the summer really has been for outside of summer Olympics, obviously the summer has really been when I have to be a, and I want to be a dad and a father um, and also be a husband. And uh, so we spent a lot of time together. We spent a lot of time. together. That's great. And it, it makes me wonder, uh, do you have any tips for anyone who's trying to, you know, maintain their relationships from long distance? Oh, that's a good question. Call every day. Um, now you can FaceTime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> makes a difference. But I'd be in touch every day. Send a letter every day. Um, I probably talk to my wife three or four times a day. Um, you know, last summer I was in the pod in Edmonton for nine weeks. Um, that's a long time in one place. And so I was on the phone probably three or four times a day with my wife and children uh, just to make sure they were okay. And my son was going to play junior out in British Columbia. And so he was driving out there on his own. And so, yeah, it was, it was different times. No question about it. My daughter's a sophomore rower at uh, Dartmouth. So she's got her own schedule. She's racing all over North America and different, uh, you know, events. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing is stay in touch, stay in touch and show that you care. And that's what I try to do. You mentioned it earlier, but your son is now, or he's in Penticton, he's set to start his collegiate uh, career at Colgate. Yeah. After seeing the game from almost every perspective there is, what has really stuck with you that you can now pass on to him? Uh, be the hardest worker every day. 
even if you don't have your hands one day, even if you don't have your feet one day, be the hardest worker and be the most coachable guy. Um, never disrespect your coaches. Show your coaches that you care about the, the end result. Um, be, a, be the best teammate. Um, always support your teammates. Uh, be, really, be the hardest worker. I, I can't say that enough. And so that's what I, whenever we talk, um, that's what we talk about. And he knows I, I don't have to push him. He, this is a kid that fell in love with the game, probably much like I did, uh, just being around it. In Montreal, he was born in Saint Agathe de Mont, um, a small town about 100 miles north of Montreal, and so just like my daughter was born in the same place, and so he knows, he knows what it's all about, and that's the only advice I really give him: uh, just be a hard worker. How cool is it to now see your son from the you know a different perspective and watch him come into his own and watch him go through the challenges and and the adversity that he's going to have to go through into seeing him be able to handle that on his own as a man? That's such a good question. I love that question. I got to tell you, Garrett, um, he left home when he was 14. He had just turned 14, went to prep school in Boston. So he's been gone for a while now. He just turned 18. So he's gone five years um, already. Uh, I think he learned a lot of prep school. Belmont Hill, where he went to prep school, was phenomenal for him. Um, I can't thank the people there enough. Um, the headmaster, uh, Greg Schneider, the head hockey coach, Jeremiah McCarthy, uh, the assistant coach, Brian Finney, all his classmates. Um, we're so grateful for the education and the, and the life lessons that he learned there. So I've, I think it's kind of different for him because he went through a lot of that adversity when he was 14 and 15. Um, so he's kind of prepared for what goes on when you're living away from your family. And I think he really likes it. He loves being there. The World Juniors just wrapped up yesterday and, you know, we're all happy that USA got the big win. It was amazing to see how far the game has progressed. Like you used to call it tackle football. And during our research, I saw you were a very big advocate for rule changes to get away from that and get more of a skilled game. So how do you feel about the game of hockey right now and seeing how skilled these kids are? I am so proud of the National Hockey League and the players in the National Hockey League and the Board of Governors in particular, it took a lot of courage to do what they did in 2005 in terms of reinventing the game and the rule book. And Brendan Shanahan and his committee deserve a lot of credit for that as well. Colin Campbell, Mike Murphy at the league office, Chris King, they've done phenomenal work. Um, I didn't want to see tackle football anymore. I didn't want to see the dead puck era. I didn't want to see it. It all goes back to the 04 Stanley Cup final between Calgary and Tampa. If you scored the first goal in any game, there was never a lead change. So you won. There was not one lead change in seven games of a Stanley Cup final. That should never happen. That, that just kills the game. So one of the ways of doing it, we had to get rid of the neutral zone trap. And one of the ways of doing that is allow the stretch pass. I had played college hockey with no red line. So I knew what it was about. And I was a very heady proponent of taking it out. And I'll never forget uh, when the league did take the red line out somebody at the league office said to me, this better work or it's your bottom. They didn't say it that nicely either. So I went pretty good. We were just talking about the bubble and you, you know, you mentioned you had the opportunity to be there. Um, What was the game like without fans? And do you think that there was really a home ice advantage? I don't think there was any home ice advantage, Garrett. That's a good one too. I don't think there was any home ice advantage, but what I would say is, Without fans, it's a really different thing. Unless you have a very mature team that knows how to create their own enthusiasm on the bench, 
And that's something that I saw from the Dallas Stars. They really did a good job creating enthusiasm on their bench. And that helped get them to the Stanley Cup final. I talked to the guys from Tampa because they were in the, obviously the Toronto bubble before they came out West. And they said that was one of the things they really try to focus in on generating enthusiasm amongst their peer group, whether it was in the locker room, on the ice or on the bench. And they did obviously a tremendous job and they won the Stanley Cup. But I think that was one of the things that I learned being in the bubble without fans is you need to have a mature team that really can motivate itself, doesn't need the crowd to do it. Yeah, it's obviously such a unique year. And, you know, this next, next year we may not have fans either for a while and at least in certain places. So I was wondering if you have any uh, Stanley Cup predictions for this season. Don't do that, Sean, because I have to stand between both teams. But it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good try. It's a all really right, good right. try. Um, I will say this, though. I think the Colorado Avalanche are going to be a team that if you're not prepared to play against them, you're probably going to lose. The Vegas Golden Knights have really improved by adding Alex Petrangelo. There's no question about it. They were almost NHL ready to win last year. Um, adding Alex changes the dynamic of their team unbelievably. Losing Nate Schmidt's going to hurt them a little bit too, but they have this kid, uh, Zach Whitecloud, who's fantastic out of Bemidji State. And uh, so I think that helps them overcome a little bit of the loss of Nate Schmidt. So I think Vegas is another team. A dark horse to watch in the West is Anaheim. They've got a plethora of really good young players. We were talking about the World Junior. They've got uh, Drysdale, Jamie Drysdale coming on defense, who's tremendous. What an awesome talent. Uh, and then Trevor Zegers up front. And then you put Troy Terry into the lineup. And I think Anaheim's going to surprise a lot of people. I really do. I and mean, in the East, I think watch out for the Rangers. Uh, long term, watch out for the Rangers. And Philadelphia is going to be really good. And I can't wait to see what Zdeno Chara is going to be like playing with Ovechkin down in Washington. I think it's going to be awesome. It's going to be hard to see him in a New Jersey. He's obviously been in Boston his whole career, and I think that's something everyone's used to seeing. So uh, obviously best of luck to him in, in Washington. And uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on, Pierre. It's been absolutely unbelievable to get to pick your brain and uh, hear more about your journey and your process to where you are today. Um, and just very grateful for the opportunity. Well, first of all, it was great meeting you uh, on Long Island, Garrett. I wish you all the best in your career. You're playing with a great program that's really up and coming. And uh, I wish you all the best in terms of your search to get to the National Hockey League. And good luck to you with that. And you and Sean have been great in this whole interview. I really appreciate it being on with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It'll be uh, really fun to see a, a friendly face now on national broadcast. Yeah, let's get going. Okay, so I'll give you an inside tip. Next Wednesday, the 13th of January, Kenny Albert and I are doing the first game of the new season, 5.30 start, Philly versus Pittsburgh. Can't wait to get going. There you go. There's your inside tip for the day. Going to be a heck of a game. Yeah. Take it easy, boys. Thank you. And all the best in 2021. Great being with you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pierre. Thank you. See you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. 
If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.